Um, so we're taking a really practical look in our series on Alpha and Omega. That we're taking a really practical look about how seeing God from beginning to end, the first and the last, uh, how that is more than just a theoretical concept that, oh, it's nice to know these things, but we're looking at just how relevant they really are. Uh, so, so just to set in your minds what we're doing through this series, I've not, I've not said this uh, exactly, but, but I think it'd be helpful for you to hear it and, and understand kind of what we're doing is we're developing a biblical theology. So much of the time when we study theology, there's a system and a topic or an individual doctrine, but we're del- developing a biblical doctrine that demonstrates to us that God has always been working. From the very beginning, God has been God, and he has a future that we, can, that we can look forward to and anticipate because he's always going to be God. But that gives us every reason in the world to rest and find peace in him and his work right now because right now, in this very moment, in this very day, in this very season of life in our, in our world, he is still God. And so it's a good thing for us to do. It's a good thing for us to study. But if we're not careful, these become theoretical concepts that we we talk about them in church circles, but we don't see them affect our day-to-day life. And they become less than, they just don't meet us where, where, you know, kind of the rubber meets the road. And I just want to be careful. So last week we, we started this, and we'll look at it this week and next week. We've got three aspects to see how relevant the reality of God's being creator that chose to be a savior who has a plan for eternity, how, how relevant it is that these aren't just theoretical ideas or concepts. So last week we looked at identity and, 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 and being God's image bearers. We're, we're, we're bearing God's image. We are, we are intrinsically, it is his image is woven into the very identity, the very core of who we are as people. But we saw how then we're also born of Adam. Now, if Adam hadn't sinned, that probably wouldn't be a big issue. But being and carrying Adam's image, if you go back and look at the language, there's a clear indication of parallelism or, or almost a opposing-ism that happens. That's, I don't think that's really a word. Um, I did that for you, Amy, just making up words just because I can. Uh, but but, but just, just this idea that, that there's this contrast happening, that we're bearing his image, and then the language is reversed. And, and, and through Adam, we, we inherit God's image, but we also inherit Adam's image, his fallen, sinful nature image. And we all sin as a result of that image. And I think that's the whole point of Genesis 5, showing us that. So, so here we are. These are the people that we are. This is intrinsically every person. It's all people, right? And in a sense, whether we recognize it fully or not, this is part of God's design for us. It's part of what he designed. Now, the original design didn't have Adam's sin, but it also, we don't see in the creation narrative, we also don't see the, the, the way in which Christ comes and restores the image of God and, and conforms us to his image, who, who, who Christ is the perfect image of God. And so, so there's a reason I'm saying this. I'm reason I'm bringing it all back up because it's going to build us out. But the point I made last week is only the glorious image of the eternal God restored through our union with his son, Jesus Christ, is substantial enough to define who I am. There's all kinds of other identifying characteristics that we carry around in life, but none are weighty enough, none that are substantial enough to support our identity as the image of God. Every other way in which we identify as image bearers of Adam are going to leave us dissatisfied and dysfunctional and in identity crisis. But in Christ, we are alive. So in Adam, we died. And we live like dead people because we're, we're dead in Adam. 
But in Christ, we no longer are dead, we're alive. And that just doesn't identify me. It gives me something to do as a result of that. Because in Christ, now I have this whole new ability. I can live. You didn't have that outside of Christ. You thought you did, but you were already dead. But in Christ, you have a whole new identity. You're alive. You have a whole new ability. You can live. In Christ, I'm, I'm righteous. And so, so in Adam, I was a sinner, right? But in Christ, the, the righteousness, the, the right standing with God, that, that I, I have that. And as a result, because I, in Christ, I'm righteous, I can actually strive to live according to God's standard. Recognize, live according to God's standard instead of die in opposition to it. Don't make the mistake to think that sinners are living in opposition. They are dying in opposition to God's right standard. They are dead and dying. We are alive and living. Radically different realities. Okay? This identity is it's important. Richly blessed. In Christ, I'm richly blessed. In Adam, I was, I was wanting for everything. In Christ, I'm richly blessed. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I, the, the, the abundance that was bestowed on us as God's creatures in the beginning is restored, and even more. As a result, I can live to be a blessing. I am reconciled in Christ. And so because of, because of what Christ has done, because Christ is, I'm, in Adam, I was distant. I was a stranger. I was an alien. I had no rights with God. But in Christ, I'm reconciled. I, I, have, I have a restored relationship. I am no longer his enemy. I am his friend, right? That's, these are all intrinsic. And as a result of that, I can live in an active relationship with God, but not just with God, with his people. And so what God's doing through his son, Jesus Christ, is not just restoring an identity to us, but he's bringing us back to what was originally designed. And this design is not just about your identity, it is about your joy. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Apart from him and apart from his work, there is no joy. But God's design from the very beginning and being restored in Christ is about his glory. It's about his greatness. It's about his goodness. It's about his grace and us seeing all of those things. But in seeing those things, being a people whose lives are marked by joy. Now just catch what we've just done. As we've just talked about the identity and how important that is to just our living. That's what we did last week. But our identity also being important and valuable to the experience of joy in our everyday life. These are intrinsically woven together. We can't separate them. And God doesn't allow for it. Not only in the creation narrative, but across the rest of the scripture. And that's what we're going to see today. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 27 through, or sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 25. Work through that, and in the working through that, we're going to see contrast in Genesis 3, the fallout as a result of sin, but then we'll be looking to the New Testament to see how God is restoring us to not, to, to not just some barely making it, but a people of joy. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 25, the original design we see, we're going to see, is meant for joy. And we'll get that joy back through Jesus Christ. So, so let's just do it. I'll quit talking about it. We can see it in the scripture. Here, here we go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It begins this way. The word of God says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the breath of life, uh, uh, man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made 
to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed from the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And, and the name of the river, third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in that day that you eat it of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper, found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed it up, up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to, him, to the man. Then the man said, now I, I'm just going to call this out. I'm just going to point it out. This is a joyous response. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Um, this is your plan. This is letting us in on what you did to design us and how you created us. And so I, I pray today, Father, that you would guard my mouth, guard my words, and guard our hearts. Um, that, that we would interpret well, that we would understand well what you intended. What our sins set off as uh, something else that, that it corrupted. But how... All of this can be restored to us in Jesus Christ. Would you work today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may have noticed, as we read through that, the only mention of joy, the only actual use of the word joy was me breaking into the middle of the text and saying, I'm just going to call this out. This is a joyous response. There's no, there's no word of joy here. There's no, no God saying, hey, I'm designing this for your joy. I, I think it'd be a pretty difficult argument to prove, though, that this isn't a a joy-filled world with, with a joy-filled intent it, just because of look at it. I mean, everything about it is harmonious and it's, it's, it's the way it's supposed to be. It's, the, it's acting as it should. It's responding the right ways to God. And, and even if we don't see that immediately in this text, it's not hard to look over to chapter 3 and see how all the thieves of joy and all the joy, the joy thieves of enmity, strife, division, uh, cursing and, and pain and toil, how those all are, are removing any ability to live a joy-filled life, right? It's, I think you could see that. But then there's the logical argument as well, because if you think about it, people are always striving for things that were God-designed and intended and seeking to be happy by them today. Why, why, why do we talk about getting married today in, in common culture? Because I want to be happy. I feel incomplete. I'm looking for somebody to be my partner, right? So we talk about marriage as, as, as if it's something that's going to make us happy. 
Why, why do we look for a vocation? We look for work that's going to make us happy and feel fulfilled. And, and whether we use the word or not, there's still a desire for joy in the things that we do. So I, I think that over and over and over, we can look at, and we did this a couple of weeks ago, I showed you over and over and over how people, by logical explanation and extension, are trying to design their lives in a way that they get back to Eden because they believe that if they accomplish these things, they'll be happy, they'll be joyful. If we get the right governors, the right governments, the right laws in place, we'll finally have harmony. We'll finally be at peace. You feel that? Yeah. Every side of the argument longs for that. If we just, you know what? If we just got rid of all the moral police that quit saying who could love me and who I could love, and, 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 and quit saying that sex was meant for marriage between, if we could just get rid of that, then, then I'll be happy. It's just, the problem isn't, it's not who I'm loving or who loves me or what we're doing. It's, the problem is that there's people saying I can't have it. Even in the gender identity conversations, right? The idea around today is that if we, would quit, if we would quit ignoring science and suggesting that God created male and female and quit holding to a biblical framework, that these people wouldn't have a struggle with their identity because they would just be able to live and be happy without the weight of cultural expectations or concerns. Here's one for you. It just got passed in a vote, if we'll quit illegalizing marijuana, we could all be happy, right? The reason people are in jail is because there's a law against it. If we quit having a law against illegal use of marijuana, well then, come on, nobody will go to jail for it. You're right, because there won't be a law. But it's not going to bring the happiness and the joy that we all so long for. It, it, it'll make you laugh for a little while but you're going to have to live with the consequences of the life you lived while you were stoned. And just take it from personal experience. I know that you'll be proud to know that your pastor has inhaled before. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry to ruin your image of me. I was once a lost man. It does not bring joy. You live with the consequences of the decisions you make when you're out of your mind, and it only brings greater harm. Over and over and over, we're seeking our way back to Eden, not because we want Eden, not because we want God's design, but because we want joy. Because Eden represents joy. It represents all the things that go along with joy, harmony, peace, contentment, satisfaction, a life without hardship and toil. So the word may not be used there, but the design and the intent behind it was not simply to demonstrate the glory of God, that we would respond to his glory, but that we would live in it and enjoy it, that it would bring us joy, that it would be a source of happiness and satisfaction and peace. And so this is the whole point of, of what we're going to drive for as we work through this text more fully. By God's design, we were created to live joy-filled lives in a joy-filled world. Though, though, though corrupted by sin, our joy is restored in our union with Jesus Christ. And that first piece is what I'm going to demonstrate to you from this text. By God's design, from the very beginning, we were created to live joy-filled lives in a joy-filled world. Now, before we jump in, I just want to do one more thing. I just want to define joy. What, what is joy? 
Now, I, there's been a lot of work. I recognize this when we were working through the book of Philippians. There's been a lot of work to say that joy and happiness are two different things and try to, try to be really specific about language. I don't think the original languages of the Bible will support the differences between what joy, joy and happiness are. Uh, in fact, the, the words are sometimes, especially in the Greek, they're sometimes translated the same in the same way that there's this idea of happiness associated with joy. There's an idea with joy associated with happiness. I, th- I don't think the original languages would experience that. But, but I understand why it's there because we seek to, to build our sense of joy or happiness off of circumstances where I think what the scripture is going to demonstrate to us is that it's originally and ultimately either joy or happiness is only ever going to come from a right relationship living by God's design. And so I, I, I understand it, but I think it, it's, it's not necessary. So to, to just define it, joy, I, I think it's, it's, it's fairly easy. It's an attitude, emotion, or experience of gladness, happiness, or, or great pleasure, right? We know what not uh, joylessness is. We know what sadness is. We, it's the opposite of that. We know what, what being without joy is, what depression and and anxiety are. We, we know that, right? So, so, so joy is the opposite of all those negative things, and it's all the culmination of all the positive things. And, so it's, and I think that's what we see happening here and what's established in this design. For example, the very first place I would point you to, by God's design, our life with him was to be joyous. By God's design, our life with him was to be joyous. Look at what he's done here. He creates a world, and, and you could go even back into chapter 1 and see the, see the chronological creation of the world and see how he first puts things into place and sets up a world that will support life. He fills it with living beings, and then the ultimate, final, the penultimate, if you will, or the, the act, the, the, the crowning jewel in his creative act is the creation of mankind, and everything in chapter 1 builds to that. But then in chapter 2, we're given a picture of creation from mankind's uh, experience or creation moment. And so it comes to verse 7, and he plants a garden. He does this very specific work in a very specific place so that mankind can dwell with him and God dwell with them. He is developing and designing a world intended for intimacy with him. The intimacy that, that we would long for between one another starts with an intimacy with him. And, and, and there is, the garden was planted as a place for God to dwell with his people. There's parallels to, to this in the tabernacle uh, language in, um, in the Exodus, right? So, so Israel goes out and God, he, they go out of Egypt, they're led out of Egypt across the Red Sea. They enter into covenant with him. He gives him instruction to create a tabernacle and the jewels that are named there for the, for the priest's clothing, the cherubim standing at the, at the eastern entrance of the tabernacle are, are mirroring the eastern entrance of the garden that then after Adam's sin are, are guarded, that, that, those, those, that entrance is guarded by cherubim. So there's so many parallels. But then you can also, if you look all the way to the end of Revelation, and you see in Revelation 21... In 22, the description of the new city coming down and the, and, and, and the imagery of gold and onyx and delium and, and the jewelry and all the beauty and transcendency of the, that's being established here in this passage. There's this way in which God is demonstrating he's got a people and a place for his people and he's going to be present with his people. Because God, from the beginning, from the original design, intended the design to be one in which he could live intimately with his people. He created a garden for them to live in a place where he could walk with them. 
There's, so, so, so God designs life. Our, God's design for our life with him was to be joyous. First in intimacy. Second in identity. And we already dealt with that last week. And we kind of built into it this week. The whole idea here is th- think about how much Think about how much suffering, how much depression, how much anxiety and, and frustration we face in life, not understanding or trying to discern who we are. There's a whole movement about, about people going out in the world and trying to figure out who I am. There's people encouraged to take a year off school, take a gap year, go find out who you are. Because we, we can't, we, we don't, we, we can't fully experience joy until we understand who we are. God has identified us. He's established identity, woven into the very identity of who we are, meant for our joy. And with that comes purpose and, 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 and work to do, right? Like woven into all of that is you're going to be my reflection. You're going to be my representation, You're going to know me intimately, and then you're going to turn around to the world in which you live, and you are going to be my reflection, a reflection of my glory, a reflection of my greatness, a reflection of of my goodness. You're going to be that to to the whole world, and you're going to fill the world up with all of that. That's who you are, and yet we've rejected that identity, and so we lose our joy, the security and we've used the word abundance. We're actually going to come back to that later. But, but, but with that abundance, just think of a life where there is no want. Where scarcity is not a thing. What would that life look like? Man, I'd feel stable. I'd feel secure. What happens when we don't have that? He's, he's planting a garden with trees that are, looking, that are going to be beautiful to look at and good for food. And there's only one of these trees that are going to be withheld. All the others, you eat from it. Please eat from it. Enjoy them. Just one. His his intention is that we live in a place where we know we are safe and secure. And and, and even even in the prohibition, he says, you know what? If you eat of this tree, you'll die. Well, wait a minute. There's, There's risk. No, there's not. Just don't eat of the tree. It's not like you're going to be walking along and the fruit's going to fall into your mouth and suddenly you're going to have sinned. There's going to have to be an act of willful decision to rebel, to take what he said. There's no risk. Don't eat, you'll live. There's no risk. Well, the Satan, Satan, Satan serpent tempted them. We see that. In, but that wasn't a risk. All they had to do was say no. All they had to do was continue to believe the God who designed them for joy. All they had to do was listen to him. You have created you in my likeness as my image. They had to believe who they were in him who created them and recognize the intimacy and his trustworthiness and all those things. There was no risk. But even if we could, even if we could come to a place where you could convince me that there was some risk and, and security of life was on the line, I would say to you, you're not going to be able to do that. I've thought about this too much. But if you could, I would tell you as much as there was an opportunity for falling, there was much more opportunity for not falling. Because they had all the other trees. And they could have just as easily ate of the tree of life as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They ruined their own security in the, in the sin. They, they introduced the, the problem. Not something that God was part of his design. His design was intended for joy that would bring with it intimate relationship with him. Identity 
as a result of being his image bearer and security, a sense of safety and, and certainty and confidence. But also, access. You know, we see at the end of Genesis 3 where he exiles them, he sends them out of the garden, and their relationship with him will be forever changed. Their intimacy, their closeness, but even their access. They could not have access to the garden any longer. And every act in which he would act, every interaction in which he would act, would come by sacrifice, but it would also be an act of his grace. They didn't have access in the way that they had before, where they heard him walking in the cool of the garden and would typically, normally, go out to meet him and walk with him. Their access was removed. By God's design, everything we read in this section is about our joy as it relates to our relationship with him. Everything was meant to be joyous, was meant to be filled with celebration, and every ounce of it ruined by the sin of mankind. Relationship, relational intimacy with God ruined. Identity, we suddenly are now more reflective of Adam and his sin than God and his image. We are more a reflection of, of anxiety and tension and frustration. Who feels safe in the world today? Well, you know, I got my guns. Who's that really saving you from? I'm not saying don't have guns, have guns. Well, you know, I got plenty of money. What happens when money is no longer valuable? Well, I don't bank at a bank. I got all my stuff stuffed in a mattress. One day cash won't mean a thing to anybody. Who, who gives value to that money? The government who printed it. So, so, so where's your security? I'm not trying to scare you. Just, let's be honest. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to, let's just be real for a minute. In the garden, there was security. Outside the garden, pain, toil, division, a world in which you're going to work and it is going to produce thorns and thistles. Exile, out of my presence, no longer able to eat the tree of life and live. Uh, it was an act of mercy. But here's the reality. That's not how God designed it. God designed it for joy. Adam's sin and our sin has ruined that. Though corrupted by sin, our union with Jesus Christ can once again, we can once again enjoy God. And there's so many places I could turn, we can look, and, and, and I show you this, Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul, even thinking about, uh, blessed be the, 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 the uh, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then he gushes for like 400 words with no punctuation his worship for all that God has done to bless us. Ephesians 1 through 3, all three of those chapters, God did, God did, God did, God did, God did, God did. He doesn't call anything about us to do anything. Revelation 21 through 22, John seeing what is to come, he cannot help but fathom and be moved emotionally and, and filled with excitement and joy as he sees the new heavens and the new earth and the new city of Jerusalem coming down. And he begins to tell what he's seeing. Using language that we can't even fully fathom ourselves because pearls the size of gates that people walk through. Who can imagine that? Like, what's the size of that clam? Right? Or oyster. I don't know what makes pearls. I, mean, I don't get into that stuff. But you know what I'm talking about, right? 
What's the size of that thing? It's massive. Streets of gold, gold so pure that it's transparent. How does that work in our world? So moved by the measurements and the massiveness of it. But then he begins to speak about a world where death and sin are gone and pain and suffering are gone. And he doesn't say it. But in the removal of all those other things, when the tears are wiped away, what rules? Joy. Joy. Philippians 4, the whole book of Philippians is a book about joy, but where's the joy come from? Paul summarizes Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord again. I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's counting everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ in his resurrection. He, he can live as a man who has nothing to lose because he's gained the greatest treasure. Jesus Christ. John 15, 11, Jesus' own words himself. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, wants your joy to be full. He spoke these words directly to his disciples, but the, the, the principle extends. He wants you to know the fullest joyful life that you could possibly have. So he spoke these words. Do, do you know what he spoke? In that passage, directly in that passage, John 15, he's talking about, my, I'm the vine and my father's the vine dresser. Your relationship to the father is through me. His relationship to you is through me. You can't have life apart from me. If you don't produce fruit, the father cuts you off and and you burn up, but if you produce fruit, he, 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 he um, prunes you so that you produce more fruit. This is, the, this is the way to joy, Jesus Christ. John 17, 13, in his high priestly prayer, he prays to his Father, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves because in God's design he did want to demonstrate his glory and he did want to demonstrate his greatness but he wants you to experience that with joy Jesus came that you and I could know joy and have the 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 joy of the original design restored in our lives now here's the key we're going to talk about the next two things we're going to talk about will never bring joy apart from a relationship to God through Jesus Christ, his son. There's all kinds of people trying, and they find themselves falling flat and dissatisfied at every turn. So by God's design, our life with him was to be joyous. By God's design, our life with one another was to be joyous. In, in, this, in this working, right, so, so we didn't read all of this that we could have read, but, but in the way in which the story is told, God doesn't pronounce creation very good until he's created the woman. In fact, we read it wasn't good when Adam was all alone. All the animals are brought in front of him, and there is no help suitable for him found. And so God acts to bring what's not good, what he himself would deem not good. He puts the man to sleep, does the first surgery, anesthetizes him, puts him to sleep, takes the rib, forms the woman, presents the woman to the man. And look at that response. He's waited for this. I don't know how long it felt like he's waited for this. I mean, obviously, he's seen every animal, named every animal, uh, birds of heaven, beasts of the field. Uh, he named them. He's seen everything, and finally he sees this woman. 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's joy. There's, it's a celebration. He goes to naming her, exercising a measure of authority, reflecting his image, his, his God image status. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. It just so happens that this first relationship that we're introduced to is also a marriage. Right? Now, I know it's going to take a little convincing for many of you to, 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 to hear this, but marriage was designed for joy. Believe it or not, it was intended for your good, for your joy. And here's the thing. So, so there's a book that I like to use for people that, that are trying to work through what the purpose of marriage is. It's a, it's a book by, his name's Gary Thomas, Rede- not Redeeming Marriage, that's another one. I think that's by Douglas Wilson. But this is uh, Redeeming Marriage, not, gosh, get that out of your head. Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage, there it is. And the subtitle tells you kind of what the rest of the book is about. The subtitle is, What If God Meant Marriage for Holiness, Not Happiness? Because most of the time when we're dealing with marriage in our lives today, we're having to recognize the sanctifying reality of what relating to a person in marriage does to us. It's sharpening us, right? It's like, it's like iron sharpening iron kind of reality. It's making us holy because we're not yet fully, we're as fully holy as we absolutely can be in position, but in condition, we're still being made holy, right? Like that's the already not yet reality of our lives. But I would add to that, what if marriage was meant for holiness more than happiness, but that holiness that it produces would lead to happiness? Because that's how we find joy, is being made and conformed to the image of Christ. Marriage was intended from the very beginning, from the design, from the very beginning, was intended for joy. And, and, and here's the thing. Is the reason I know that this is a marriage is that every time divorce and marriage are talked about, not every time, but, but over repeatedly in the scripture when marriage comes up, this passage comes up. Matthew 19, Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees. And he says, hey, they say to him, hey, can we divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus is like, you know what? The only reason you can divorce anybody, and this is Seth's version. Go read it. You'll see it's a little clearer. But the only reason you can divorce anybody, the only reason Moses wrote that into the law was because the hardness of your heart, because sin is in the world. There's only, the only reason there's any allowance at all, any leniency, any, any permission for divorce, it starts with the hardness of our hearts. But then he immediately gives the allowance of uh, adultery and and uh, uh, the per, per, not adultery, but sexual immorality as permissible for divorce. But still, it's connected to the hardness of heart. So he answers the question this way, Matthew 19, 5, as he's dealing with this marriage, uh, uh, that, that, that the, he responds and quotes what we get in Genesis chapter 2. That's what I'm trying to say. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And Jesus says, so what God's joined together, don't let anybody tear apart. That's the whole point. And he draws on this relationship, this marriage relationship in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul has laid out for the first three chapters what it looks like to be a believer and how blessed you are and how God has, has given you so much to fill you with so much joy. He points back to this passage as the example, as the, as the ground, as the foundation of marriage. And he, he references it. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
So, so over, repeatedly in the scripture, we see that, that this first relationship was a marriage. Marriage was intended to bring joy. And in fact, who wouldn't feel good? Who wouldn't feel good walking into the house and hearing, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I've been waiting all day for you. That's, who, who wouldn't want to hear that, right? Like, that's a joyous response. And, and I'm going to interact with you, and I'm going I'm to exercise my role in your life, and, and you're going to exercise your role in my life. In fact, that's, I would call that out next. Is this the male and female relationship? They're complementary relationships, equal in standing. We see that in the chapter before when God creates them in his image, male and female, equal in standing before God, not one better than the other, not one, not, not one more deserving or more God's image than the other, both equal but with distinct roles assigned from the very beginning that were intended for our joy. So Adam couldn't have a baby. He could only implant a baby. How in the world am I going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth without someone to help me in that? He needed Eve. Eve, she, she could have a baby, but she couldn't get the thing going, right? Like she couldn't start it. <laughs> Don't laugh. Sorry. She was stuck. She, she, they're complementary. Adam exercising authority from the very beginning in the home. You are woman. This is an exercising of authority. I'm going to call you woman. He does it again in Genesis 3. I'm going to call her Eve, mother of all the living. This, this role in which she's going, to, she's going to nurture and tend to and take care of this child that she's, about to, that she's going to, to grow within her womb and then give birth to. There's a way in which these two things function. And it's, it's something we argue against today. But God intended these complementary relationships, complementary uh, distinctions. They, they're intended and designed for joy so that we're together, together accomplishing the goals God has given us, accomplishing and living to the purpose that he's assigned by the very creation that he's designed. So there's, so there's this thing that's happening, and we argue against it all the time, but why do we argue against it? Well, look in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, immediately they're covering up, they're hiding from one another, the very corruption of their relationship, they're, they're distant from one another, they begin to hide from God, they can't have a good relationship together because now they're hiding from God. And then in the midst of pronouncing the judgments, God comes to them, and, and people argue whether he's causing this to happen or it's the direct result or the consequence of sin. I think it's the direct consequence of sin. He's told them this kind of stuff was coming, and now he's going to tell them again. Because of this, your desire is going to be contrary to your husband, and he's going to rule over you. There's enmity, there's arguments, there's frustration, there's tension between the husband and wife. And so a marriage that was meant for joy between complementary relationships is suddenly dysfunctional because of sin. It didn't stop there, though. You see, Adam and Eve were the first relationship, and it just so happens that they're a marriage, but they were to bear fruit. They were to have a family, and those families were to have families. And so we not only have marriage, but we also have family designed to bring us joy, but belonging to one another, taking care and, and, and taking responsibility for one another. Adam and Eve were supposed to do this in the very beginning, and instead Eve goes and does her thing. Adam doesn't protect her. He doesn't say, hey, Eve, don't eat that. He doesn't not eat it himself. He steps in and joins his wife in the sin. And then they have sons. 
And in Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain kill Abel because of jealousy and wanting to have a good relationship with God. And he's got it, and I want it, and so I'm going to kill him as if that's going to fix his relationship with God. But when God approaches him about it and asks, where's Abel? You remember his question? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. The only reason you're not is because of jealousy and enmity and infighting in the family. This thing that was intended and designed to bring great good because of sin. Suddenly, I don't even care about the brother that's of the same house. Fellowship. So we've got this this marriage and and complementary roles and relationships. We've got family and fellowship further. Adam and Eve, they're to be partakers in and share of God's goodness and his grace. They were supposed to share in this stuff together. They they each had a part in his mission for them. They they were to to equally carry it in their distinct roles. And, And how would that happen if their family didn't follow, right? Like the filling of the earth, multiplying, filling the earth. How's that happen? If that doesn't continue in every generation. Well, we see the breakdown of that in Genesis 11 when they don't want to fill the earth and they just want to build a tower to make a name for themselves. This, this, this marriage that builds family, that, that brings about fellowship, was all intended for joy. But because of our sin, we've lived for ourselves and sought to make a name for ourselves. And God has stood willfully opposed to that. So much so that he sees the tower, and I've talked about this before, he sees the tower, and in, in, in some symbolic fashion, as if he's distant and high and not everywhere, he looks down. I can only ma- imagine him laughing a little bit, chuckling. Look at that little tower. I, it doesn't say he does that. That's not my imagination. But we're going to go down. He has to look down to see this little thing that they're building to make a name for themselves. And he brings judgment, and he brings greater division as he separates their language and bars them for walking in deep fellowship. Just think about what our sin has done and how it's removed and robbed our joy with one another. What God intended to bring great joy to our lives has has instead brought great frustration. Though corrupted by sin, our union with Jesus Christ, we can once again enjoy life together. Ephesians 1, written to every one of us, tells us we are all adopted into the same family. Ephesians 2, Jesus talks about that, or not Jesus, Paul talks about that Jesus is our peace, the two becoming one, two men becoming one, talking about the division between Jew and Gentile. He further talks about in in Ephesians 2 that we now have access to the Father. Ephesians 4 through 6 then lay out what it looks like to live as God's children in this world. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 14, describes the spiritual gifts that God has given his people. And not the same gift to every person, but diverse gifts given to large groups of people so that his mission is carried out by equal people who have complementary roles. Who have distinct roles that they're supposed to live in. So, so not, now we see this spiritual family being formed. These, these marriages being restored inside, this, inside the spirit, right? So you go to Ephesians 5 and we have hope of Ephesians, uh, uh, Genesis 2 wedding. Because we have Ephesians 1 through 3 directing us to be in Ephesians 5 marriage. And then we have the family, the spiritual family of brothers and sisters in Christ. And a fellowship restored where we each are partakers, equal partakers in the mission of God. 
1 Corinthians 12, 14, 12 through 14. 1 Peter 4, 10, again, Peter's really good with concise words, not me. He's, he's much better than me. But 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, and, and, and the word gift is a form of the word grace. As each has received a grace, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he goes on and breaks out how there's word gifts and there's service gifts. Both equal, both empowered by the Lord, both accomplishing God's mission in the world. But some have word gifts, some have service gifts. To the glory of God, we all get to experience his grace as each of them use them. Right? As each of us do this, we get joy. We rob joy when we live according to our own means and, and, and come to church seeking to suck life out of it instead of bringing grace to it. But God says, yeah, you can have this again in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised, who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How desperately we need the body of believers to endure in this life. How discouraging is it to, to, to turn on the news? To, I don't care who you're listening to, CNN or Fox, both are filled with fear and, and, and don't do this because this is what you're getting. This is destruction. we got to defeat this because if we don't defeat it, it's destruction. We're lost. I don't care who you're listening to. That's the message. We need one another. Hold fast confession of hope without wavering. Where's our hope? It's not, it's, it's, it's not this life. It's the one to come. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and give words. How easy is it to, to just fall back in apathy and not do the God-honoring thing, even though that's the difficult thing, not do the God-honoring thing because there's nobody prodding and encouraging and standing alongside to say, do the right thing. Left to ourselves, that, that fire will burn out to a very dim light that doesn't even provide heat anymore. Not neglecting. How do we do this if we're not together? If our lives are so full and so busy and we can't be together because we're pursuing all the things that the world says we must pursue? Hebrews 13, 1 through 4, let brotherly love continue. That fellowship, that affection, that family. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. Hey, don't just remember those who are with you. Remember those who are separate from you because they've been oppressed and, and are being imprisoned as though, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He's talking about brothers and sisters who are suffering because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forget them as if you are with them. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Because that marriage is the very foundation. It's the very first relationship. And it's from that relationship that family is developed and fellowship is enjoyed. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So God has designed something for joy that in our sin we have so distorted and so corrupted. That we live in a world that says, well, I can have my joy and I can have this stuff apart from God. And what we see over and over and over is it do all it does is in increase, increase the hurt and the harm and the, and the pain that we endure. See, there's a right way to want these things in the culture we live. God intended these things for joy. 
I want people to know the joy of knowing God. I want people to know the, the joy of living life in step with him. I want people to know the joy of living by his design, a design that was rooted in creation, that was corrupted by our sin, but can be restored in and through our relationship to Jesus Christ. And so often we go into the world and we're seeking our joy by getting people to conform to our way of life because that makes us more comfortable. That's no longer about living for joy. That's living for self. We can want them to know this joy. We can, we can act rightly in this world for their good, for God's glory, because in this design is joy. But we'll only ever know it in and through a relationship to Jesus Christ. They will ever, only ever experience it in and through a relationship to Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, they're alive and can begin to live. In Christ, they're righteous and can begin to be righteous. In Christ, they're reconciled. In Christ, that, that, that's where it all comes from. By God's design, our life with one another was to be joyous. By God's design, our life in this world was to be joyous. Go out into the world. He commands the man, go out into the world, rule, subdue, fill it, multiply. He gives him a woman to do that alongside him as a help to him. That they become the, the beginning of this work. In this, there's purpose, right? God gives them purpose. How many people are looking for purpose? Like, I just, I just want to know why. I just want to know the purpose. In fact, that's the way they say it now. I, I've heard it like on TED Talks and stuff like that. And you just got to define your why. You just got to know your why. D discover your why. God gave it to us. It's a sign. From the very creation, we've been designed for a purpose that is absolutely glorious. Reflect and represent his greatness, his glory, his goodness, his grace. That's so much more than occupational glory. So much more than just horizontal relational joy. I mean, just think about this. This purpose is so full. To be a representative of the God who has the power to say, let light shine, and light shines. That's a purpose worth living for. It's joy-filled. Uh, uh, work! You're going to go out and you're going to work and, and, and you're going to tend to this garden and in your work, it's going to produce fruit. But as soon as we see it happen in Genesis 3, oh man, purpose is gone. Work is toil. It's, it's work for the woman. The, the same word, hard toil, is given to the woman in bearing children. I'm, I'm going to increase not just your, it's not just pain, it's your toil in, in childbearing. In, in, to the man, he says, I'm going I'm to increase your toil in the working of the ground. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. Again, we see those complementary roles being spelled out as, as judgment is pronounced. But now work is hard. It's not very fulfilling to go into work. I, I, one thing, I, when I was in aviation, that's true about pastoring too, but it was very clear in aviation. I knew every day I'd lay out a plan, and every day it was not going to go to plan. <laughs> More stuff breaks than what goes right. It's just the way of the world. Work is hard, not very fulfilling. We, we, we chase after vocations as if we're going to somehow be fulfilled in our work. We'll never know the joy of work apart from a relationship with God. Abundance 
Again, that security, the abundance. We've talked about this quite a bit. I don't, I don't think I need to spend a lot of time here. God provided them abundance in creation. But in Genesis chapter 3, suddenly there's scarcity. Thorns, thistles, you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. And now, <laughs> the relational dynamics, we're, we're competing against one another. We're, we're acting as if i got to have, i got to get so that I can get mine. Forget you, I, I need mine. Right? So we're taken from one another. But though corrupted by sin, our union with Jesus Christ, we can once again enjoy life in God's world. We can know his purpose. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I would propose to you that until you stand alongside the church, filling the, filling the world with God's image, right? Tie this back, right? It's, it's the same command. It's just given now in a, in a world that needs Christ. Being fruitful and multiplying. You could have the, 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 the greatest job in the world to give you, to give you the, I don't know, the wealth, the, the position, the status in the world, uh, all these things. Until we join together and seek to live according to this purpose that we've been commissioned and given, there's always going to be something lacking. If we don't get up and go into the world to live to the glory of God in everything, seeking to see his made, made, his, the world filled, with worshipers, there's always going to be something lacking. Uh, we could talk about that. You may not agree, but I think that's true. John 10, 10, Jesus, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, a lot of people, they want to automatically connect to that. Well, that abundance means wealth, and I'm going to have lots. I'm going to have a big retirement. I'm going to have a lot of stuff in my bank, and I'm going to have a bunch of toys. The one, the one with the most toys at the end wins, you know, that kind of idea. But if you read the context, the abundance is in relationship to him, the good shepherd. Joy thieves come, and they steal, and they replace the abundance that we receive in Christ with worldly things. Joy thieves come, and they, and they steal joy by, by uh, inducing us and leading us to live to something, and follow after something other than the good shepherd. Ephesians 4, 28 I love this verse. I love this verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. Let him work, right? I'm tired of hearing people think that they're supposed to get something for nothing. Get up and get a job. That's what I want to say. That, and it, that's another, sorry, that's another deal. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands. And if that, if that was the end, that would be a great instruction, right? That would be a great instruction. Let him get up. Don't steal, because that's the right thing. Don't steal. Get a job. Go to work. Feed yourself. But he doesn't stop at that. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That whole idea of this purpose we live for, this work we do, and this abundance we've been bestowed, that's been bestowed upon us, being a benefit. I'm going to work not just to, not just to feed myself, but to be a blessing to others. In the name for the glory of our great God. So that I can be a part of making disciples in this world. So that they too can know the joy of knowing God. This is it. Through, through, though corrupted by sin, our, our union with Jesus Christ, we can once again enjoy life in God's world, enjoy life with one another, and enjoy life with God. By God's design, we were created to live joy-filled lives in a joy-filled world. Though corrupted by sin, our joy is restored in our union with Jesus Christ. And I hope you've heard. I hope it's clear. 
If you're sitting here and you think you're going to get joy in some other way, it's never going to happen. Dead things die and mourn. Only those made alive in Christ will live and experience joy. So turn to him and follow him. Christian, repent and follow him. Non-Christian, begin to believe. Repent and follow him. Let's pray.